Over the past year, we have been traveling through Mark's gospel, considering what um, he has to say to us as a church and as individuals, as Christians. Uh, Mark is writing uh, this letter of this gospel to Christians in Rome, particularly uh, in the first century. Uh, Mark is one of the early writers, one of the very first. Uh, he only is preceded by James in his letter. Um, and he's writing to these Christians who are being persecuted there in Rome uh, because of their Christian faith. And as we think about our passage this morning and these, these first readers of Mark's gospel, uh, we have to think that they would have seen often generals being marched into the city after winning a victory, after winning a battle. Caesar coming in with his troops uh, uh, arrayed with such pomp and glory and shouting and singing and songs and dancing. These sights would have been accustomed to many uh, there living in Rome and I'm sure these Christians who lived there in Rome, they would have seen much glory associated with, with victory, with shouts of praise and glory. But the picture painted in Mark's gospel, that in the minds of his readers, is so different than what they would have seen. So, so stark and, and so contrasted, so, so different, just glaring in its comparison to what these Christians in Rome would have seen regularly. Well, in what they see in Jesus in the triumphal entry, when the King of Glory enters into his city, he doesn't come with an army. He doesn't come with shouts and crazy dancers. But he comes humbly riding a donkey. And we're left to ask, who is this man? Who, who is this man? What has he come to do? Why are they singing songs, Hosanna in the highest? What does it all mean? Brothers and sisters, I invite you to, let's go to God's Word and consider with you what it means that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. What does it mean that this Son of David has come? Well, I invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11. And we're going to consider perhaps a very familiar passage to some, the triumphal entry, one that usually in the life of God's people, only gets mentioned on Palm Sunday. But here we are in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 11, and verse 1. Now when they, that is the disciples and Jesus, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that he cut from the trees. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the, with the twelve. Mark paints a, a wondrous picture that may, if you have been a Christian for a while, uh, a beautiful picture of the, of the Christ, the King, coming into his city. The triumphal entry of Jesus uh, takes place, though, right at the beginning of the Passover week. Um, much of the chronology of this last week of Jesus' life is really where we, we get that from John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, John really details exactly what's going on. And, and Mark just kind of leaves some details out because, if you remember, Mark is giving a very fast-paced picture of Jesus' life and ministry. He's really, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10, given a very quick kind of panoramic view of the life and ministry of Jesus, really hitting the high points of Jesus' life, all seeking to point who he is and what he's come to do. But when he gets to chapter 11, he slows the pace down. The camera is no longer weep, sweeping side to side in a fast pace, but it slows to think slowly and carefully and intentionally about who Jesus is and particularly his last week on earth. In 30 years, Mark covers 30 years of Jesus' ministry in 10 chapters and one week he'll spend Six chapters thinking about, five chapters, excuse me, thinking about Jesus' last life. The Passion Week has begun. And the entry of Jesus into here, into this city, his passion has become. This purpose is being fulfilled. And just a reminder as we think about the context of this passage. The Passion Week, or excuse me, the, this Passover week in the life of God's people, in the life of Israel, was a, was a week of celebration. And if you remember in the story in, in Exodus, it's, it's a celebration of liberation, isn't it? A celebration of, of their freedom from slavery in Egypt during the time of Moses. Just imagine, the king of glory comes in to give freedom to God's people on the very day that God's people are celebrating their victory they receive from God. We see Mark telling us exactly what happened. But what is the point? What, what do we see here is going on? What, what is it that Mark is see, seeking to teach us? Or what is going on in the story? What is the point? Well, what I hope to show you this morning is this passage teaches us that Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king who has come to give you victory over your enemies, over your enemies of Satan, sin, and death, so that, you may be, so that you may freely worship God and submit your whole life to Him. Jesus is the long-awaited King who has come to give you victory over your enemy, Satan, sin, and death, so that you may be free to worship God and submit your whole life to Him. That's what we're going to consider today in this passage. Now this passage teaches us just sort of three things that I want to think about this morning. How can you have victory over your enemies? How can you have victory over your enemies? We see three things. First, you must recognize Jesus as your king. You must recognize Jesus as your king. Second, you must trust 
that Jesus alone has the power to save you from your enemies. Jesus alone has the power to save you, and you must trust that. And third and finally, we must freely worship God and willingly submit our whole life to Him. Those are what we're going to consider today in this passage. Mark tells us that they have drawn near to Jerusalem. Jesus has been on a nine-month journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, a gruesome trail uh, that was not easy. But Jesus isn't alone. Because of the Passover week, hundreds of thousands of Jews are traveling to Jerusalem. They're pilgrims coming to, the, to, the, to Zion to go and to worship and, and to go and celebrate with their, their families and their friends the Passover. They're, they're uniting to worship God in the Feast of Tabernacles and then in the Passover celebration. And Jesus is, is there accompanied with them. And Mark tells us that that as they prepare, that Jesus purposes to go uh, to the city. Jesus has planned all of this out. Uh, this is uh, intentional on Jesus' part. Jesus means to teach us something about who he is and why he came. None of this is by accident. This isn't just mere coincidence that, that these disciples go to the village and find a donkey. It's not mere coincidence that all of these things are happening. No, there are grand theological purposes and, and great application for our own lives this morning. So let's consider then what we see in this passage. That first, we must recognize Jesus as our King. If we have any hope of victory over our enemies. Notice with me in verse 7. So we're just going to jump in in verse 7. Uh, the disciples have returned with the donkey. Uh, they've went, they followed Jesus' command, they've done everything Jesus has said, and they're back now, uh, verse 7. So just get your eyes there at verse 7. Look at, what they, look at what Mark records. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. And notice what we see in this passage is that what they did with their coats. They took their coats off and put it on the donkey. Now, this just seems kind of practical. It just on face value just seemed like, hey, look, look, I mean, here's a donkey. He's never been ridden before. Um, you know, they, it's not been accustomed to someone sitting on its back. Uh, and, uh, and often you don't ride animals without a saddle, right? So you need those things. And so it seems very practical. But, but there's something so much more important going on here as we consider sort of the, the, the first century context. There, these cloaks were, were sort of their outer garments. You know, the word itself just sort of sounds weird. We don't use that. I got my cloak today, and I put it on. Um, we don't use that. We, it's, it's their coat, their outer garment. It's what you know they would have used to perhaps keep warm, what they used in the nights, so very cool, and so needed at night, so they would have carried it with them. These would have been often expensive, and you often only had one of them, maybe two. And so you didn't like, you know, it's not like us, you know, where we have maybe like t 20 coats in the closet at home that we never use, right? These individuals, these folks would have had this coat. This would have been very important for them. And as you just look at this, they, clearly what they're doing is they're submitting to Christ. It's a vision of submission here. They, they, they are, they're, they're responding to Jesus. They're treating him like a king. I mean, let's be honest. When is the last time you threw your coat in the street? When is the last time you were watching a parade and, you know, someone really important came by and you threw your coat in the street for him? I mean, no, we don't do that, right? Uh, just recently, my wife and I have been shopping for coats for our children, and those suckers are expensive. 
man, I would be mad. I would be furious if my kids were throwing their coats up in the street. But, but what we see here is a symbol of submission. They're recognizing Jesus as their king. Uh, this, this is not mere coincidence. This, is, this, is just, this isn't politeness. They are, these people are saying something about their actions. They're saying something about who Jesus is. Friends, we don't just throw our best just anywhere. And these individuals here surely aren't going to throw their only coat they have with them on this journey to Jerusalem for which they have no luggage just on the street to get all dirty and dusty and trampled by donkeys. But we see also something else they do. In verse 8, which is perhaps the one thing that this passage is known for, is that they take and spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now I know as I read that this morning, you cringed as you didn't see palm branches there. You cringed because this adulterate, no. Right? More likely, it would have been leafy branches, perhaps straw, that they would have thrown onto the street. Perhaps palm branches, but that's reading into the text something that's not there. All of the other gospel accounts are similar in the language. Matthew, though, does include that word, palm. And so what we see is that they are recognizing Jesus here, uh, this this act that they're doing. So just to be kind of clear, this act of kind of throwing things in the street like this, this isn't just sort of strange. This this seems strange to us. I know. It seems foreign. It seems weird. But, But when you remember, it's just about 200 years before this event happened. There was a Maccabean revolt. There was a revolt by the Jewish people. And when the, when the Jewish people revolted against the ruling power of the day, one of the things they did when the, their, the Maccabeans came back and, and declared victory there in Jerusalem is they threw palm branches on the ground. They, 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 this is a symbol of celebration, a symbol of victory over their enemies. And so what, they are, what they're declaring, if you will, by throwing these palm branches or leafy branches into the street is that the one who can provide victory has come. The one who can give us the victory we need over our enemies is here. So we see this is a symbol of victory. They were pretty much rolling out the red carpet for Jesus to come into Jerusalem. Now we can analyze and question whether or not they knew really what they were doing. Perhaps they were caught up in sort of the messianic hype of the day. That's most likely. The beginning of the Passover, every year there was this expectation that the Messiah was going to come. And so perhaps they just kind of got caught up in the moment. We really don't know, but we know that, that they, but what they are saying, though they don't clearly understand it, we know that Jesus does provide victory. We know that the greater son of David has returned to the city of David. The king has come into Zion. 1 Samuel tells us that this is how the people honored their kings. This is how they would have honored their kings. They They would have thrown these out. And so the people wouldn't have naturally done this just for a prophet. They surely would not have done this for a rabbi. No, they meant to tell us that Jesus is a king for whom worship is due. One of the things we've encountered in Mark's Gospels we've traveled through is the Messianic secret. One of the things as we consider this passage is fascinating is Jesus doesn't stop it. Remember all the other times that, that somebody sort of blurts out that Jesus is the Messiah? 
like Peter confessing that he's the Christ. Remember, he says, don't tell anybody. Don't say anything. When, when, when Jesus delivered the man uh, there in the, in the tombs, right? He says, don't, just go tell your town what's going on, but, you know, keep it kind of keep it quiet. But here we see Jesus is allowing all of this. The messianic secret is, is ending. The silence is, is over. Why? Well, because the time is at hand. The king's arrived. The Passion Week is at hand. Jesus has come, and no one can now stop him. The King will not be stopped. The Son of God has arrived. The destined day that we sang about, it's at hand. We see also here in this passage, just notice what they say in verse 9. Excuse me, in verse 10. Look at verse 10. We're going to consider some of these verses in detail in just a moment, but just consider verse 10. Notice what they're singing. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. The coming kingdom of our father, David. Remember, David is the ki- was the king of Israel. He was like the pinnacle king. He was like the main dude. Like everybody, you talk, like what's the best king? You know, like kind of like what we do with presidents. You know, who's, who's your favorite president? You know, who's the greatest president? All those kind of things. Well, in Israel, David. Every day of the week, twice on Sunday, right? David was the greatest king. David was the king for which all kings point, for which every prophet pointed, for which Jesus himself said, I am the son of David, for which these people sang praises. Jesus is the son of David, and that his kingdom is coming, that his kingdom has arrived. In the triumphal entry, we don't see just a group of people giving vain praise to a man. No, in the triumphal entry, what we see is that they are revealing to us in their words that Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king. He's that king that Samuel prophesied would come. He's the king from the tribe of Judah. That Israel, that Jacob, that promise that Jacob received at the end of Genesis, in, there in Genesis, when, when God said to Jacob from Judah, from your son Judah, would rise up a king who would deliver God's people. He's the seed of Adam, the seed of Eve, who would crush the seed, crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is David's greater son who's come to give victory and deliverance of God's people. Matthew, in his account of this, of the triumphal entry, tells us explicitly that this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. What we heard Nathan read in the scripture reading, uh, Matthew says was fulfilled that day. That passage, completely filled, and Jesus is coming. That he came, the the war horse came, but he didn't come. He came not on horses and chariots, but he came. Rejoice greatly, Zechariah says. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. Notice the king is righteous. He's not wicked like the kings of Israel. He's not wicked like the kings of Judah. He's not wicked like King David was. No, he is righteous. And he has salvation. He brings with him salvation. He does not come empty handed. He comes with salvation. He comes humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus comes on a donkey. Fulfilling that long foretold 500 years before. Jesus comes and fulfills that word. 
as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the Messianic King. This is what we sing about today. That's why we sang crown him with many crowns or look ye saints, the sight is glorious. We, we recognize and we sing and celebrate that Jesus is a king. But he's not just any king. He's not just the king of Israel. No, he is the king of kings. Like no king is a bigger king than him. No king has more real estate. He's the king of the universe. Do you believe that Jesus is the king? Do you believe that he is the one? Jews and Muslims reject this alike. They say that Jesus is not the king. He's not the Messiah. He's not the deliverer. He's just a mere prophet. He's just a mere man. I wonder, does your family, does your family know that you believe Jesus is a king? Your friends and neighbors? Perhaps if you use social media, does your social media reflect that Jesus is your king? Does your attitude? Perhaps do your worries about this election reflect the reality of who's king? Who's really in charge? Brothers and sisters, one thing I want to show you about this passage that's kind of implicit is that God is a promise-keeping God. That when God says, I'm going to do something, oh, it may take 500 years, but he does it every time. God keeps his promise. God's promises will come to pass. There are promises God has made that have not yet come to pass. And we must trust that God is a promise-keeping God, that God will keep His promises. When your soul is weak and wounded, when you feel as if the, the tides of this world are crashing upon us, when you feel doubt and fear, apply the promise of God. Apply the truth that God keeps His Word. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise. Do you claim that promise? Brothers and sisters, we must recognize Jesus as a king. We must recognize that he is a king. We must bow before him as king. All glory be to Christ our king. His rule and reign we ever sing. That's what we sing. All glory be to Christ. There's no one greater than him. No king nor kingdom greater. He is the king of kings. That's what we sing. That's what we celebrate in our hearts and apply to our lives. For you to experience victory over your enemies, it begins by you recognizing your true king. That's where it begins. You have to recognize that Jesus is a king. Not just any king, but your king. This leads us to number two. We must trust Jesus alone has the power to save you. Jesus alone has the power to save you from your enemies. Jesus and Him alone can deliver you. Notice what these individuals sing. What are they shouting about? What are they singing? Mark tells us that, that they're shouting in the streets. They're, they're singing in the streets. What were they singing? Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What were they singing? They were singing 
the pilgrim song. They were singing the Hillel. The Hillel was something that every pilgrim would have been singing that day. Every pilgrim that marched to Jerusalem would have sang the Hillel, which is Psalm 114 through 118, culminating in verse one in chapter, or excuse me, in, in Psalm 118. It's the culmination. It's the same hymn that was sung by Jesus and his disciples as they journeyed from the Lord's Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Hillel is a celebration that God alone will give victory. It points to the fact that God is the one who will give victory over their enemies. It was a reliance on God alone and His trust and His power to save. And what they were reciting is that psalm, a regular reciting that God would deliver them from their Roman oppressors. That's what they thought. That's what they were singing about. That's what they were celebrating. Finally, God will deliver us from Rome. Jesus will ultimately give victory to them over Rome. That will come later. What Jesus has come to do for them that day was to deliver them from their real enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Notice what they say specifically. Hosanna. Hosanna. That literally is just a transliteration of O save. Oh, save, is what they say. Oh, save. Oh, save God in the highest. God in the highest, meaning highest heaven. God above, right? Pointing to where God lives. God of heaven, save. They're singing that God alone, a recognition that God alone can save. Does that not reveal the depth of our own sin? Just think for a moment. When we sing... God, save, it tells us that we can't do it. It reminds us that we can't save ourselves. That Jesus alone has the power to save. That God himself can save us from our sin. Notice also they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying that Jesus alone has the authority to represent God. He came in in God's name. came, spoke, kind of like a power of attorney. When you get a power of attorney, you you give the authority to someone else to speak on your behalf, right? So you go get an attorney and you say, this individual can speak on my behalf about legal matters uh, for me, medical, things like that, right? Well, what Jesus is doing here is speaking on behalf of God because he is God. The point of this passage is to show us that Jesus isn't merely a man, but he has been authorized as the eternal Son of God to accomplish redemption for God's people. So not just shouting praises to a mere man. No, they are singing glory to Jesus Christ. They're they're ascribing him praise that Jesus alone has the power to save. Oh, save us. Oh, save us, Jesus. Only you can do it. Only you can save us, God, from our enemies. Only you, Jesus. One commentator writes, God does not win by sending armies into bloody battles, but by sending his son to the cross as a king who gives his life for others. Jesus reigns with a kind of power that earthly kings cannot match. How does God fight his battles? Not like this world, but through the cross. 
One thing this passage teaches us is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation. This passage teaches us that Jesus alone can save, that there is no other ones to save. This is why we, we confidently know John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No other way. And as Christians then, this claim of Christ's exclusivity should be a cause for us to desire that the gospel be shared among the world. If we know that Jesus is the only way to God, well, then the only gospel that we, that we share, that we have hope in, is that gospel. So everyone else that does not receive that gospel, hear it, repent, and believe, is not saved. And cannot be saved, but is eternally condemned. This is what motivates us in, in our evangelism efforts, in our worship, in, in our global missions. Because we want to see people saved by the power of the gospel. The skeptic might say this morning, well, doesn't that seem kind of naive, narrow-minded? Isn't Christ, is, really, is Christ really the only way to become right with God? And do people actually need to have a conscious faith in Jesus to be saved? That means actually, like consciously, despite what some might teach about an anonymous Christian, it's not true. You must have conscious faith. Many today might, might, might object to the claim that the exclusivity of Christ. Might say that's ir- it's arrogant or intolerant or ignorant. Surely doesn't this offend our egalitarian sensibilities that we always want to love on others but never really point them to true love? But the Bible makes this so point that Christ is the only way. That there is no other way. This is what Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God for salvation. There's no other power of God yet through the gospel. And again in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Brothers and sisters, if you want the power of God, it is through Jesus Christ. It's through his gospel. It's through no other way. The exclusivity of Christ teaches us that Jesus alone and Him alone has the power to save. He alone. There's no one else. If you're not a Christian this morning, it is only through Christ. It is only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Through through faith and trust in that, in His sacrifice for your sin that gives you confidence. It's not through living moral life. It's not through doing good deeds. It's not through some sort of self-conscious, you know, feeling really good about yourself. Or feeling really bad about yourself. It's about a conscious trust in Jesus. A a reliance on him and him alone. For your standing before God. One day you'll meet your creator. And he will tell you what is the basis. What is the reliance for you standing in front of me today. For I am a holy God and you are a, a wicked man. For Christians we will say Jesus. Not in me. There's nothing in me. Don't look to me. I ain't got nothing. I brought nothing with me. I brought only Jesus with me today. So friend, I pray that you would repent of your sins and trust in him. For he is the only way to life with God. Brothers and sisters, do we trust in the power of Christ to save? Has our doubts and fears defied that this morning? Do we often feel as if God's love for us is diminishing? Do we often feel as if God is sort of growing further away from us rather than closer to us? Let me just reassure you today that Christ has the power to save. To save even you. 
He could save you today. Not tomorrow, but today. I just wonder, how do you go about defeating your enemies and your wife? Do you rest in your own power and strength to kind of fix the problems of your life? Or do you rest in the power of God, the power of Christ that we see illustrated and, and demonstrated in our passage? Brothers and sisters, genuine peace can only be found through reconciliation and restoration with God. So if you're in unrepentant sin this morning, if you're a Christian in unrepentant sin, you cannot experience peace unless you repent and trust in Jesus. It is only through that that you can experience genuine peace this morning. Let's quickly finish with our final point. All of this leads us then to freely worship God and willingly submit our lives to Him. Freely worship God and willingly submit our whole life to Him. We've observed through this story what the disciples did. How they reacted. How they responded. What, what they did in response to who Jesus is as a king. They recognized him as a king and they trusted that he was alone was the one who could deliver them from their enemies. Whether they fully understood it or not, we don't know. We know two things. The bondage of sin and the freedom through Christ. What we see in this passage and what the Bible teaches is that, that we are bound in sin. Now, I know in Christians we often mistakenly say that we have free will. And the Bible just doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that Adam and Eve had a free will. And that they, through sin, submitted that to sin. And that sin bounds us. Martin Luther argued in the Reformation in the freedom and the bondage of the will against Erasmus's freedom of the will, that freedom, the freedom will not and cannot do good and necessarily serves sin. We cannot do good, he says, and, and our lives necessarily serve sin. Brothers and sisters, sin is serious. It binds our wills. It chains us. It does not allow us to choose good. If we, doesn't mean we don't do good. Just be clear here. It doesn't mean we can't do good. What it means is, is that everything we do is tainted by our sin nature. All of our good deeds are filthy rags before a holy God. We are sinners in need of a Savior. The Bible teaches us that because of our sin nature, we are in chains to sin. We are not free. We can't free ourselves. No more than a prisoner can break free from prison. Sure, we, we put our hopes in these things, but the reality is, is that Satan is a stronger man than us. But Christ is much stronger than him. Right? To diminish the bondage of sin is to diminish Christ. That's what Luther argues in the bondage of the will. To take away the bondage of sin is to take away a glorious Savior. Brothers and sisters, we need deliverance. That's the point of needing a king. Look, if we did not need to be freed by a king, then we could have done it on our own. But implicitly, the fact that we needed Jesus to come and free us implies that we couldn't do it on our own. That we did not have the power in us. We did not have the free will to do it. 
only someone outside of us, acting upon us by the power of the Spirit, could actually do the work because we were bound in sin. Brothers and sisters, we must see this today. This is why we pray. This is why we pray for conversion. We pray for conversion because we know that God is the only one that can convert. God doesn't do it extemporaneously. God does it through the preaching of his word. Through the telling of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we know here that freedom is won through Christ. And that's the confidence we have. That's why now through the cross and through Christ you are free to worship. You couldn't worship God before regeneration. You were bound in your sin. But now in Christ you are free. You are free from Satan. You are free from sin and death. This is what we sing in victory in Jesus. I mean, we're singing victory in Jesus. Why? Because we're free. And we are reminded that we were not once free. Not only were we bound in sin, but we are bound to self. The bondage of self and the submission to Christ. With the sin nature comes the fruit of selfishness and self-centeredness. What we see exhibited in Adam and Eve is what is exhibited in our own lives through the sin nature. And that is selfishness. We live our lives for ourselves. The world, we think, resolves not around the sun, but around us. Everyone serves us. And often we don't even realize it. We often don't see. That's the point of bondage, by the way. Right? That's the, that's the point that Satan has. He doesn't want you to realize you're bound. He doesn't want you to wake up and realize that you're, you're actually bound to your selfishness. But we must realize that we make our daily decisions as if everything in the world is meant to serve us in our ends and our purposes. <laughs> this is why we, we talk about us and our happiness and our satisfaction all the time. This is why we, we talk about how, how you know, we feel. Because we think everything's about our feelings, about us feeling good, and about us being satisfied, our own enjoyment. This is why we spend all of our money on, on, on entertainment and, and being satisfied in that way. At the end of the day, we're just users. That's what we are. Aren't we? Every one of us, in Christ, without Christ, we're users. We use others. We use our spouses. We use our children. We use our family. We use our friends. We use our jobs. We use our neighbors. We use everything for our own end so that we look good to others and praise them. We, we raise our kids to be good and well-behaved, not so that they're good and well-behaved, but so that we can, you know, parade them around and like, hey, look how good my kids are. They don't act like psychos like your kids do, right? This is why we... This is why we want to be successful at our jobs often. It's not so that we can give to our employers more or we can, you know, just go and, and benefit the economy. We do it so that when we get around our, our families at Thanksgiving, we can talk about how good we've been and how, how wonderful we've uh, done at work and how successful we are. We live for our own glory. We live for our own selfish ends. But when it comes to Jesus, the problem is he looks you right in the eyes. And he says, I've come to kill you. I've come to kill you. At the cross, Jesus says, I've come to kill you. Paul tells us that we've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ came to give us victory over us. 
over ourselves, to, to, to free us so that we might submit to him. And Jesus didn't die on the cross to make a better you. He died on the cross to make a new you, a completely new you, a new creation in Christ. The old has died, the new has come. And that new life is meant to be lived in submission to Christ. When you become a Christian, listen, when you become a Christian, here's the reality. You're no longer in charge. And I want you to think for a moment here really hard. If you think you're a Christian and you're still in control of your life, the Bible says you're not a Christian. Sorry. And I want to, I want to, I, I know that perhaps well-meaning people in the church, perhaps even this church, have patted you on the back and reassured you that you're a Christian. But I won't. The Bible won't. The Holy Spirit won't. If you are not living your life daily in submission to Christ, then you're not what God says is one of His. For what we see in this passage is that God's people submit to Christ. They submit to Him and they give their lives to Him. Jesus is our long-awaited King. He's come to deliver us from our enemies so that we might worship Him and submit our lives to Him. Everything in our lives. As mysteriously as the crowds gathered to sing praises, so they disappeared and there alone stood Jesus. The God-man had arrived in His temple. No one was there to recognize him. There was no party at the end of that celebration. There was no high priest there to welcome him into the temple. No, Mark tells us in verse 11 that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Oh, and, and hear these words. And he went in and he looked around. And as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we see this glorious sight. Imagine the sight. See it in your mind's eye. God has returned to his temple. The Shekinah glory of God that has been absent since Haggai built that place has returned. God's glory once again stands in the temple Jesus goes and sizes the temple up. As he checks it out. And does a look over at it. In his mind, he thinks that in the coming days, this temple will be obsolete. This temple will become useless in a matter of days. No more priests. No more incense. No more blood. No more sacrifice. No more altar. No more curtain. Why? Because God has come. God has come in Christ to fully and finally deliver His people. To fully and finally unite sinners to God. Through the death, of the death on His cross and through the resurrection, God's people are free. And He is present again with His people. What a glorious truth this is. We celebrate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory today. We honor you. We thank you for the victory that we have 
been, that we have been given through Christ and not of our own strength, not of our own power. We know that this is solely by grace alone in Christ alone, and we trust that. And Lord, I pray this morning that we might be given Spirit's aid to live our lives this week in, in willing worship and free worship, just to freely obey you and worship you and submit our lives to you, O oh Father. Help us to do this. Oh, we, are, we are still ridden by the old nature. We often long to slip back into our old ways. And Father, I pray that the new man may be seen today in us and in our lives this week. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.